to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to another one of our programs on purpose-driven organizations dedicated to making a positive economic, social, and environmental impact on our world. We're having a series of conversations with people who are committed to making a difference by contributing their time, expertise, and experience to supporting these organizations and participating in the development of new solutions for achieving sustainability. The series is sponsored and supported by the Business Law Section of the American Bar Association, which has over 50,000 members and has just published the Corporate Social Responsibility Deskbook. Sales of the Deskbook have been gratifying, and these podcasts provide a great opportunity to provide more information within the legal community and to entrepreneurs, directors, executives, managers, investors, and others interested in one of the most important global topics of our time. I'm Alan Gutterman of Gutterman PC, working in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. And I'm your host for the series and one of the co-editors and authors of the desk book. Today, we'll be hearing from Margaret Richardson, who wrote the chapter on environment in the desk book. We'll have Margaret tell us more about herself during the conversation. But for now, let me set the stage by telling you that she serves as the Vice President of Regulatory Compliance and Safety for Global Widget LLC. Prior to joining Global Widget, Margaret served as General Counsel and Head of Regulatory for Anuvia Plant Nutrients. Margaret has also held the title of Vice President Legal for Mena Pharma and Endopharmaceuticals and General Counsel of Jubilant Life Sciences. She brings a unique educational background with science and business degrees before completing her JD at North Carolina Central University. Margaret is licensed in North Carolina, California, and before the USPTO as a patent attorney. She's been an attorney for over 20 years and focuses on working collaboratively across business organizations to build and foster a culture of compliance. Margaret, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today and share your, your experiences and purpose with our listeners. Let's start with a real quick overview of where you work and who you work with. Sure. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me join the podcast, Alan. I'm very excited to be part of the project. Uh, currently, as you mentioned, uh, I work at Global Widget LLC, and, and the uh, company is based in Tampa, Florida. And we're actually one of the largest uh, manufacturers of CBD infused products in the United States. So a lot of the listeners may not uh, be familiar with the CBD industry. It really has grown out of the 2018 Farm Bill where industrial hemp uh, was allowed to be grown and no longer considered a controlled substance uh, as mm -hmm. listed 
by the DEA. And so I'm very excited because this really allows me to bring my compliance and sustainability focus to an entirely new industry. Uh, industrial hemp is a new agricultural product, um, provides a new source of income for our uh, farmers and growers throughout the United States and actually based on the 2018 farm bill the the uh, industrial hemp currently grown has to be grown basically organically in the sense that no pesticides are actually approved for use on industrial hemp uh, so it leads to a very sustainable crop uh, for those uh, growers hmm. fascinating and as you might expect uh, uh, it, it's it's a matter of uh, a topic of great interest uh, here in, in in California from from a variety of, of, of perspectives um, as well. So um, uh, it's a great uh, you know sort of sort of topical background to discuss you know social responsibility and and, and compliance type issues. One thing uh, you know we're going to spend most of our time uh, getting your thoughts on on uh, best practices and, and and things that 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 you do and, and recommend and all that but uh, before we go down that road as as everyone knows the the name of the book uh, used the words corporate social responsibility or or CSR uh, in in the topic and uh, it was quite compliance oriented and that sort of thing uh, but in talking to other people uh, there are a lot of different additional names that are used, uh, buzzwords and things like that, in addition to CSR, such as ES, ESG, sustainability, and purpose, and impact, and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, what, what do you, um, uh, how, how do you describe this whole area when you're talking to uh, uh, colleagues and friends and family members who want to know just what it is you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I really consider, you know, corporate social responsibility really encompasses a number of different issues, but it really looks at the impact that your organization has not only on its employees, but also the broader community as a whole and the entire supply chain that you impact. So in, in our uh, situation, uh, current example with Global Widget, um, you know, we have the ability to really impact all the way down to a grower um, and their efforts to grow industrial hemp uh, properly, meet the various compliance requirements that have been set out by the USDA under the 2018 Farm Bill and or the associated approved plans for the different states that they live in. Um, look for ways that that industrial hemp can then be cultivated appropriately um, with the least amount of impact to the environment. Um, look for ways to process it um, and how you can, for instance, use the waste uh, for other purposes. Um, so it's really thinking about it in a much broader context than just, you know, am I compliant and and uh, am I buying from a supplier that says that they've they've met a checkbox item? Uh, I think it's a much broader conversation, and that's why, from my perspective, if you're in house. Um, in the legal or compliance department, it's really important to have your arms, um, you know, reached out to all members of the organization because that's really what it takes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you in a minute to tell me a little bit more about, you know, what your days are like and 
you know, what projects are occupying most of your time right now. But but I wanted to step back a bit and and, and give you a chance to, to tell us a bit more about your career path and, and how you landed where you are today. And I'll, I'll just give some anecdotal background to things um, in, in a comment on something that I've been reading, on some things I've been reading lately uh, about, you know, a science background in, in this area. Uh, many years ago, um, you know, close to 40 years ago, when I first started practicing, um, I was found myself involved in emerging technology, biotechnology at that point in time. And one of the things that I was in a law firm, but one of the things that we struggled with, uh, and we had companies that, at that point who were who were relative, not unlike the, not unlike the industry that you're in now, who were who were surging forward, uh, somewhat undefined, uh, and uh, attracting a lot of interest and capital, and actually going public. The early '80s was a time when a lot of the the biotech companies did public offerings. And one thing we looked for was trying to find um, attorneys and others with a science background who were willing to step over and get involved with this and help attorneys and everybody figure out the science and how it could be explained to investors and that sort of thing. So when I saw your background, uh, it, it resonated because, uh, you know, that was certainly something that um, – if somebody had that background at that point in time, uh, they could write a, you know, their own their own ticket. And it took a while, many years, uh, to develop the expertise that that was necessary. So, I'm interested in, you know, how how you applied your your, your science background to what we're doing today. I, I will also say that uh, you know, I've read recently that many critics of some of the new tools that are coming out for measuring uh, ESG and that sort of thing are saying that, uh, you know, in order to really understand them, there need to be more people with a science background um, involved in creating these metrics and explaining them and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's a long sort of anecdotal introduction to asking a bit more about, uh, to tell us uh, about your path through science to law to, um, to business where you are today. Yeah, so uh, I don't know that everyone would want to go on my path, but um, uh, I, I originally uh, went to school to become a veterinarian. Um, my initial passion was really um, in the ag and uh, animal science uh, area, um, and that was kind of, I was super excited about that, and I had spent um, most of my formative years uh, you know, out on the farm, uh, working with primarily large animals, cattle and horses, sheep, goats, those kinds of things. Uh, when I went to uh, North Carolina State University in Raleigh um, for my undergrad, um, with the plan of I'm going to become a veterinarian, uh, I got fascinated by business. And so I actually ended up um, graduating with uh, dual majors and really found that the business was, a, you know, a lot of fun. It was something I didn't know. Uh, it was kind of an interesting area. Um, and I really saw the intersection of science and business, um, you know, that that really provided a unique opportunity 
to go out and do work. So I spent several years um, in the ag industry, uh, kind of with the intersection of the of the science and business, um, and uh, then decided to go uh, back to law school. So I did not immediately uh, leave undergrad and go into law school. Uh, I spent several years working. Um, and then decided, hey, I think the the law school uh, would be a good, again, another good addition um, because so much of, at least from my experience, what I was doing um, from a science and business perspective was really predicated on, well, what what are the requirements? What does the statute say? What What is the legal guidance? Um, and so I realized that that really became uh, very important to the success of any business that um, you know, that I was working for. And so I, I went back to law school um, and graduated from North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina, um, and uh, immediately uh, was able to utilize that kind of science business intersection um, going to work for Children's Hospital Los Angeles um, out in uh, California. Um, great opportunity, tons of fun, um, perfect intersection of, of all those uh, background and experience, uh, managing their patent portfolio and their research projects. So a lot of really uh, exciting and a great uh, learning opportunity, working day to day with researchers on the cutting edge of issues surrounding pediatric oncology and uh, pediatric um, immunology, had the opportunity to launch several successful products. So we, we introduced an oncology product for, for children, uh, was intimately involved in the first ever gene therapy study done in children, um, and then uh, launched a product called Extend Bars uh, that was originally designed for pedi uh, children with type 1 diabetes. Uh, which is an inherited uh, form of the of diabetes, and so that was that was a great opportunity, um, and that really allowed me to gain a lot of experience on what are what are businesses looking for, um, you know, what do they require in legal counsel, um, and really, the, I think there are two main requirements: is uh, one uh, being able to translate information into easy, understandable pieces of data. Um, you know, it's great to read a 100-page statute, but if you can't, you know, meld it down to two or three sentences, uh, most people don't have the time to listen to a long, detailed discussion of all the legal intricacies. Um, and the second thing was being able to understand how to take that science information and, again, put it into um, a legal document. Uh, that would withstand scrutiny over time. So having that ability uh, was able to work several years in the, you know, kind of on the nonprofit side of things, and then eventually moved into corporate. Um, uh, my first in-house position um, was with a small company in Maryland. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, it was uh, set up by a group of a gentleman that had uh, acquired a product from GSK, which um, you know at the time was Glaxo Welcome, and uh, Glaxo Welcome thought the product wasn't going to be worth any money, and uh, they relaunched the product um, and you know kind of made uh, made a good amount of money, but being 
there at that point in time where you could understand the science, for instance, the clinical trial data, uh, what was available in the patent portfolio, and then being able to work side by side with management to drive strategy, you know, really allowed me to gain the kind of additional business experience that I was looking for. And then slowly move into more generalist positions um, away from maybe just a focus on patent and intellectual property into the general counsel roles that I've held uh, where, you know, you're not just being asked to do kind of one task, but you're being asked to uh, identify key issues, uh, red flags, and make sure that you're providing strategic advice to the business that really helps them grow and succeed long-term. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the other big key takeaway for, for anyone that wants to do in-house work is, you know, always be seen as the partner who's looking for solutions. I think a lot of times uh, attorneys kind of get the um, reputation of, well, you can't do it or I'm going to tell you no or this is bad or you shouldn't do these things. Um, and I think if you go in with the attitude of there's usually a solution, uh, you just have to be creative and think outside the box. Uh, that has served me well in the various roles that I've had, um, you know, throughout my career. Mm -hmm. well, very interesting. Very interesting. And I, I Margaret, I, I will share with you that that uh, I've I've asked all the contributors on the series to to answer a, a similar question because I think the listeners uh, are are interested in in the various paths and and some of the serendipity that that some of the contributors have told me about. Uh, it, as to how they came to be doing what they're doing, anything from, from uh, you know, moving across the country for family reasons or uh, an economic downturn uh, causing them to uh, scurry around and and look at other opportunities. Uh, it it it's not always the, the obvious path and everything. So um, uh, I, I think that's quite interesting, and of course. You know, hopefully we have, uh, in addition to in-house counsel listening to the podcast, we also have, um, you know, directors and, and, and uh, traditional business folks and everything who can benefit from uh, understanding just what they ought to be looking for when they're uh, talking to their legal advisors and everything. Let me uh, turn now, and you've already started talking about it, so... So, you know, if, if, if there may be some other things that you haven't mentioned yet, but uh, I, I wanted to focus a bit on, on the specific projects that occupy most of your time right now on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, at the same time, um, you know, as, as in-house counsel, and I have been in-house counsel as well, and if there's one thing we can all agree on, most of the time is we don't have all the resources that, that we wish we had to do all these things. Um, so your insights as to how to manage that and, and prioritize items would be, uh, would be useful. Sure. In, in terms of um, big projects right now, uh, as I mentioned, um, because a lot of what we do is directly related to the quality of the industrial hemp that's coming from our farmer partners, uh, that has been one of our major focuses, um, developing long-term relationships with farmer partners um, across the United States that are growing uh, their industrial hemp um, in a sustainable manner, um, not using any pesticides, 
um, and uh, harvesting it appropriately so that we can maximize um, our yield um, related to the oil that's extracted from the industrial hemp and then later uh, turned into the isolate that we use. Uh, so that that is a large portion of the work that I do, and and that's primarily in the southeast. So most of the um, industrial hemp growers that we work with are are in places like Georgia. Um, mm. Florida has an industrial hemp program, um, and uh, Louisiana, um, and there's also a few in Colorado. So you know the the states that have been pretty active in that area and had early industrial hemp programs that were adopted by um, the USDA. Outside mm -hmm. of that, of course, uh, we manufacture our product in-house um, pursuant to uh, CGMP. And so as part of that, uh, whenever you do manufacturing, there's a certain amount of waste uh, that is uh, created in the process. So making sure that we're managing that waste appropriately. Uh, for instance, Florida just uh, enacted as of January 1, the Florida Food Hemp Permit, which actually included pretty extensive regulations around how to manage the waste coming from that process, uh, whether it's the spent industrial hemp as a result of the extraction process or the residual solvents um, that are part of that extraction process, how best to manage those to make sure that we are not introducing um, any type of chemicals or solvents or anything into the environment that we don't want to have. Um, obviously here in Florida, that's really important. Uh, our ecosystem is uh, you know, very delicate and we wanna make sure that we're being a good neighbor and not disturbing that ecosystem that's so important to Florida, its natural habitat, and and all of the uh, the wildlife here. And then outside of that, um, from a compliance perspective, focusing on all the different requirements um, in terms of what the product um, should be, how it's manufactured, and does it meet the various uh, labeling rules that exist across the United States. So there's there on a day-to-day -day basis, there's a lot of issues around um, corporate social responsibility, um, making sure that we are educating our legislative legislators appropriately. They understand um, what CBD is. Um, and that, again, we're partnering with them appropriately so that we can protect um, folks from product that's uh, adulterated on the marketplace. We certainly don't want that. That we don't have bad actors also providing product into the marketplace. And that the product is sold to uh, the intended users. So all of our products are labeled um, to not be sold to someone who's uh, younger than 18 and some municipalities and states, it's 21 and over. Um, again, that's part of being a good corporate partner. Um, you want to make sure that all down your distributor uh, chain, that they understand what the requirements are and that you're providing them with the tools so that they can be successful. Very, very good advice and certainly applicable not only in in, in your market, but uh, in others as well. Um, we often get the, the question uh, from uh, uh, in-house counsel and what have you about, gee, you know, uh, what, what can I do to, to, to build support for, uh, for uh, you know, 
the activities and, and, and compliance areas that I that I really need to pay attention to. Uh, and and you you touched on this in your chapter in the book, Margaret. But uh, are there are there you know a, a top five sort of list of suggestions that 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 you would would quickly give to our listeners looking to uh, to to build support? Sure. I mean. I- I think number one, you have to be the resource for the organization. That means you have to take the time to uh, stay up with what's changing, uh, what what is happening, what's being intended or put out from the legislature that impacts you, statutes, um, or frankly, nonprofit organizations in the compliance realm, a lot of it is not statutory. Um, A lot of it is kind of uh, hope and, you know, it'll sound good. A lot of it is, you know, the PR folks like it. Um, And you want to be careful, of course, what you're saying. But again, looking to outside resources, making sure that you understand, um, you know, what the benchmark is and that you are staying up with the changes that are occurring in your industry. Because I think one of the biggest, um, you know, time uh, uses for in-house counsel is just staying aware and relevant of all the the issues that impact them. It's really hard when you're there and, you know, you've got 100 emails and everybody wants a piece of your time. So I think that's number one is really stay current in your industry. Uh, That way you will be the resource that the organization comes to. I think the second is, uh, and I've always done this, um, you know, when you start or even if you've been at the organization for a little while, I strongly suggest that you have standing meetings with a variety of different um, department leads. Just because, you know, you don't necessarily talk all the time to somebody in your EHS group or the facilities group or the operations uh, team lead, uh, it's still a really good idea to create those relationships because you'd be surprised what you learn if you have kind of every few weeks you talk and you say, hey, what's happening in the facilities? And you happen to find out that, you know, maybe uh, there was a leak that somebody didn't tell you about, or maybe they used a chemical improperly. A lot of times that information is not going to get to you unless you've already created those relationships and, and having those kind of standing conversations is a really good way to start building that trust. I think the, the third really important item is to provide information proactively to the organization. So as new things uh, arise or if you're made aware of issues, it's always good to reach out to key partners and let them know this, you know, that you're aware of it and these are some suggestions on, you know, what you could do. Obviously, it's important to um, communicate appropriately be aware of things like attorney-client privilege and, and those issues. But beyond that, it is really critical to be proactive and constantly providing that new information to the business. I think the, the fourth uh, really important item is uh, within the organization at the senior leadership uh, level. You, you want to be seen as strategic uh, and not the person that's saying no. 
instead of, um, you know, no, there's always, well, let me check into it. Let me see, you know, what some options are. You don't necessarily have to have the answer immediately the day that you're asked, um, but I do think you have to use your creativity and kind of tap into some of your network. Uh, maybe there are other people that you've worked with and other companies that might have run up across a similar issue and they have some solutions they could provide you. And I think that the fifth really key is that network and having outside counsel that you trust, um, you know, that you can call and you can ask questions and, you know, discuss suggestions and ideas and and they uh you know they're there to really support you because they're the subject matter expert um and i think that's really important uh definitely one of the keys to my success is is knowing what's a good resource to go to because you can't possibly know everything but one thing you can do is maintain a very active network of either outside counsel that are experts or other other in-house in counsel that are experts in a specific area that you can call and just have a chit chat with and you know they're they're a really terrific uh way to enhance your ability to be effective on the job those are great suggestions margaret thank you um we're we're getting near the end of our time for today but um i wanted to uh, spend the last couple of moments uh, asking uh, if, first of all, if there's if there's anything you wish I'd asked you and I didn't that that you'd like to share with our listeners and 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 in the same vein, uh, you know, any insights, any any prognostications, and I won't hold you to it about uh, you know where all this is going in the in the in the years to come and. Yeah, and what do you think uh, your role might be uh, five years down the road, or what, or, or what have you? Although nobody could have predicted, <laughs> certainly, certainly in the area where your company is working now, nobody could have predicted a lot of the things that are happening there, uh, even just a few years ago. So, if there's anything I missed that you'd like to share uh, with our audience, uh, 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 please, please let me know. Yeah, I think, you know, from a co corporate social responsibility perspective or just sustainability in general, I think it's going to continue to be a, a top line issue for all organizations, large and small. It's not going to go away. Um, certainly you see, uh, you know, children in school and, you know, as they go through their formative years, these are key issues. You see it now on the political stage um, as they talk about, you know, their positions related to these issues. You see it all the way from the local, state, and federal perspective. Um, so I don't, I don't think any of these issues are going to go away. I think the the key takeaway is um, staying active. Um, making sure that you are paying attention to what's happening and finding a way to really provide that leadership to your organization as a voice um, and knowing what you want to say. You know, what does the company want to say about their position as it relates to corporate social responsibility? How can you enhance um, that voice, that leadership position? Um, and I think if you can find a way to do that, not only will it help the business, because I think uh, one of the skill sets that most attorneys have is the ability to distill information and explain it uh, very easily to a wide audience, but it will also help you from a career perspective because it will give you the opportunity to continue to grow 
and take on new challenges in your career. And I think that's what most people want. You don't want to just become stagnant and just do kind of the same thing uh, in this space. That will never happen because I think the bar will continue to rise and it'll continue to be an opportunity for um, in-house counsel to contribute positively, not only to their own organization, but to the or the community as a whole. Agreed and, and, and well said. Uh, I think this, this this topic, regardless of what, it, of what it's called, CSR, uh, sustainability, what have you, uh, is, is a great opportunity for professionals, particularly lawyers of all generations, young, old, middle, what have you, to uh, refresh and reinvigorate uh, the, their perspective on their profession, and, and uh, there's much to contribute. Um, Margaret, I want to thank you again for participating, and of course, I want to thank all of you for listening. I hope you'll join me for other programs in the series. And you can find information about the series, all of my guests, and the death book, as well as resources on series topics provided by contributors at my website, alangetterman.com. If you have questions for me or any of our guests, send me an email at alangetterman at gmail.com. So long for now, and I hope to be talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That... The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.